Okay, you can turn in your Bible to Genesis 39. So we've been coming through. We've been coming through the book of Genesis together. And praise the Lord. We're in Genesis 39. As we sometimes do, let's stand again and read this together. We're going to read the whole chapter. Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight. And attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the, to- from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, When he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You can be seated. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us as we dig into this passage. Let's pray. Lord, there are times where you've pulled back the curtain and you've, you've allowed us to see glimpses of spiritual warfare, of battle. That this is not peacetime, but this is war. And there's sin and there's Satan, there's a tempter. And God, I pray that you would do that through your word now. God, thank you so much for letting us meditate on this chapter of Scripture together. God, please pull back the curtain and let us see the invisible. Open our eyes to see spiritual warfare and the schemes of the evil one. Help us to see, Lord. Don't let us be blind to these things, God. Keep us from living as if it's peacetime rather than war. And Father, greater than that, Father, we can think of times where you've pulled back the curtain and you've let us see glimpses of Christ. And Lord, you've put in our heart a love for our Savior. Lord, we love, we love you, Lord Jesus. We know the mere edges of your ways. And yet our hearts overflow with love. And God, I pray that you would do that now through your word that, that again, again, God, you'd pull back the court curtain and you'd let us just catch a glimpse of Christ. God, as we've often said, we long for that day when we get to see our Savior face to face and worship completely unhindered, Lord. We long for that day. But God, would you give us a taste of it this morning? Give us a taste of the sinlessness, the holiness, the perfections of Jesus, the excellencies of our Savior, God. Let us see. Open our eyes, Lord, and let us see. And God, as we see, I pray that our hearts would worship. You alone, Lord Jesus, are worthy of adoration, worship, and praise. We bow down, Lord. We lift up our hands. We whisper your praises, God. We scream them at the top of our lungs. You're worthy, Lord. You're worthy of all worship. Let us see you this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's start off and let's just see if we can grab hold of the plain sense of this chapter in God's word. Just the plain sense of what's here. And you really can break this into four different sections to try to grab the plain sense. Let me see if I can help us do that. So verse 1 
through verse 6a, verse 1 through verse 6, the first part of verse 6, 6a, we see Joseph as a slave in Potiphar's house. In this first section, we see Joseph as a slave in Potiphar's house. You remember how he got there, right? So if you go back to Genesis chapter 37, God gave Joseph these dreams. He, he spoke something to Joseph that he was going to rule and reign on a massive scale that the sun, moon, and 11 stars would bow down to him. And his brothers despised him for it. Joseph bro, Joseph's brothers hated him. And he shows up one day to check on his brothers and his brothers in violence and with murderous hearts. They strip him of his clothing and throw him into a pit. They intend to murder him. But they think, you know what, we could get a profit off of this. So how about we sell him into slavery instead? And in Genesis 37, we see that they sell Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites who are going to take him into Egypt. Well, he'd be sold as a slave. So you remember that in Genesis 37. Then Genesis 38, it's almost like the Joseph narrative hits the pause button for just a moment. And we get the story of Judah. And we learn something about Judah in chapter 38. And it seems like maybe it's a random chapter in the Bible. But as we saw last week, it's not random at all. It's very much so about Jesus, about Christ. And then what happens in chapter 39 is after we hear about Judah, then we pick back up the story of Joseph right where we left off. He's been sold into slavery in Egypt to a high-ranking officer of the Pharaoh himself. His name is Potiphar. He's a captain of the guard named Potiphar. Now, as Joseph is there and he's a servant, he's a slave in Potiphar's home, it says, we, we get this picture as we read through the first six verses that, that God is with this man. And as God is with him, everything he does, it's just, it's like everything he touches succeeds. And he begins to rise in authority and influence in Potiphar's house to the point to where Potiphar feels like he didn't have any, anything to do anymore, hardly. Because everything Joseph does in his home seems to prosper. So this is Joseph's place in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is an unsuspecting uh, beneficiary of what we read about in Genesis 12, 3. Where God said that to Abraham. Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. Well, he's blessed Joseph. And therefore, God has blessed his house. Now, the next section, just understanding what's here. The next section, verse 6b, or the second part of verse 6. All the way to verse 12. In that section, we see Joseph's temptation. Where Joseph is tempted by a seductress, which happens to be his master, Potiphar's wife. And so we see Joseph coming under sin's temptation. Now there's a couple of things. I want us to sit here for a little bit longer than we will the other sections. But there's two things we can grab from reading about Joseph's temptation in verse 6 through 12. One is this. Here we see the nature, the nature of sin's temptation. What's it like? What is sin, sin's temptation? What is it like towards Joseph? What is it like towards us? I want us to be made aware. I want us to be awakened. I was thinking this week, I was talking with a brother of uh, stories, you know, camping stories. Have you ever been camping and you're out there, you're in the woods, 
and you're, you're just chatting it up, you're talking, you're laughing, everything's fine, you're just relaxing, you know, you, you're just having a good time, and then all of a sudden you hear a stick crack in the woods. It sounds like a heavy foot. Maybe you hear a low growl. What happens to your awareness at that moment? All of a sudden, thing, everything's not light and fluffy every, anymore. All of a sudden, you're aware, you're thinking, you know that something is out there on the prowl and you don't want to die. You're awakened. And I want that to happen as we think about the nature of sin's temptation, that we would be a people awakened. It's not a small thing. Temptation is nothing to relax around. So I want us to think for a moment about sin's temptation. Four things that we can see here. Number one, sin's temptation is a predator. It's a predator. We see that in verse 6, don't we? Look at it. 39 verse 6. So he left all that he had in, in Joseph's charge. Excuse me, go to, go to the second part of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Like a predator. If, you don't, if it doesn't get you there, keep going. Look at verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she called him by his garment saying, lie with me. Sin's temptation is like a predator. We read about that in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 where it says sin is crouching at the door. And this desire, listen to me, sin is crouching at the door and this desire is to rule over you. We see that in 1 Peter 5, 8, where it compares Satan to a roaring lion. The Satan walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Sin's temptation is like a predator. It's after you. Secondly, sin's temptation is persistent. It's very persistent. We see that in verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day. As she spoke to Joseph day after day. Temptation is persistent. We see this in the life of Jesus. When Jesus enters into his temptation. You can read about it in Matthew 4. You can go read about it in Luke chapter 4. Either one of those chapters. And you notice that he tempts Jesus towards sin. Doesn't work. Tempts him again. Tempts him again. And then it's not over. He waits for an opportune time to tempt Jesus again. Sin's temptation is persistent. It's very persistent. I want you to think about sin's temptation in that way. That you, you ought to think like this. That even on your deathbed, you will be fighting sin's temptation. Even in your last breath, the last breath of your life, you'll be fighting temptation. It will be after you. Thirdly, we see the, we see the deceitfulness of sin's temptation. The deceitfulness of sin's temptation. Again, verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. Listen to it. To lie beside her or to be with her. You see, she's saying, lie with me in the beginning, and then it doesn't work, so she brings it down a notch. Look, just, 
Just come lie beside. Just come be with me. Just come be with me. It says there at the, at the very end. Or you could keep going. Verse 11. One day when he went into the house. Who is this? This is a teenager. 17, 18 years old. He's going to. Satan knows how to get the teenagers going after this teenager when when nobody else is in the house, it says in verse 11. Waiting for that opportune moment, like it says in Luke chapter four, Jesus was tempted three times and then Satan's going to wait for an opportune moment. Sin's temptation is deceitful. It's deceitful. How's he going to grab a teenager with sexual morality? Teenagers in the room. Your parents might wait till you're 18 to give you certain responsibilities. Satan doesn't care. He wants you now. And then lastly, we see the deadliness. Fourthly, we see the deadliness of sin's temptation. It's very deadly. And that's the way this whole passage is treating sin's temptation. As it's a deadly thing. It's not a small thing. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. This stuff is deadly. Brothers and sisters, it's not a small thing. It might seem like a tiny little temptation to you here, but it'll take you further than you ever wanted to go. Sin's temptation is deadly. You need to be aware of that. Now, this shows us the nature of sin's temptation, but we also see here the proper resistance, the proper resistance to sin's temptation in the life of Joseph. And what do we see? Well, number one, we see a holy refusal. That's what I call it. Just a a holy refusal. Look at look at verse eight. I love this. Excuse me, verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. And I love this. Three simple words. But he refused. How do you resist sin's temptation? Temptation. Number one, a holy refusal. He just refused. This is just an old-fashioned no. I'm not doing it. I know where this will lead me. It has promises that it offers you now, but it takes you nowhere. It's deadly. No, no, no. There's a story, I hope I remember it right, about uh, John Piper's fight with sin and temptation. And in that story, he tells, he tells a story about uh, how he's walking on a sidewalk going somewhere I don't know where. And a lady steps out in front of him and walks ahead of him. And he feels in his soul temptation, temptation towards lust. And in that moment, with, it, with people all around in a public place, he screams at the top of his lungs, No! And he said he was so embarrassed he didn't feel tempted anymore. <laughs> I think it's a good example of taking sin seriously. And walking in a holy refusal. Number two, we need, to, we need to remember as we fight sin's temptation, remember why we refuse it. Why? And what we see in Joseph's answer is not only a horizontal love for his fellow man, but we see a vertical fear of God. 
Don't you see that here? He mentions his master. My master has given all these things into my charge except for you. How could I do this great wickedness, he says? But then look at the very end of verse 9. He says, how could I do this great wickedness and what? And sin against God. You see, all sin, all sin, every sin is not merely horizontal against your fellow man, but it's vertical against God. I'm convinced that the reason for so much fake repentance that we see in our culture is because we don't we don't have a fear of God. We don't see that the one who is ultimately offended is God himself, not that person. You remember Psalm 51 and David. A man who committed adultery, a man who murdered the woman's husband. And yet in Psalm 51, in that psalm of repentance, he says, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. He saw the vertical reality of his sins and it led him to real repentance. It's God who he had offended. And it's the fear of God that will keep you from giving in to sin's temptation. Think about the one who is offended. Third. We have to view sin as unthinkable. In this fight against temptation, we must view sin as not merely something that's off limits, but something that is unthinkable. Here's where I'm getting that from. Look at verse 9. Second half of verse 9 says, How then can I do this great wickedness? Do you hear his words? That doesn't sound like, I really want to, but it's off limits. It sounds like, how then? This is unthinkable. How could I do this great wickedness? And we must get our hearts into that place. As we fight sin's temptation, our heart needs to be in that place to not merely resist sin, but despise it. Did you know that that's part of the the growth of, of the Christian The growth of the Christian is not merely learning how to resist sin's temptation, but hating sin. Hebrews 1, that's our Savior. He loved righteousness, but he hated wickedness. Did you know Christians are supposed to grow in hatred? In hating sin. Fourth, in in our struggle and fight against sin's temptation... We should give no provision for the flesh. No provision whatsoever for the flesh. Now that verse is Romans 13, 14, where it says that to give you a similar verse in Ephesians 4, 27. It says, give no foothold to the devil. Not just don't give in to him. Don't even give him an opportunity. Don't even give him a foothold. Make no provision for the flesh. And that's what we see in Joseph's life. And she says, look, just just come in with me. Just 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 lay beside me for a moment. Just come be with me, as it says there in verse 10. And he refuses. He says, no. In fact, it says in verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. He didn't even give her an ear, didn't didn't even give her a provision. To make way into his heart. And that should be our attitude towards sin. And fifthly, flee. We see that in verse 12 as he leaves behind what she grabbed and he flees. He runs out of the house. There's a moment to run, to stick your fingers in your ears and run from temptation. And we see that, if you need a cross reference, 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says this, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Now, as we're thinking about just the plain sense of what's here, what have we seen? First section, verse 1 through 6. We've seen Joseph, a slave in Potiphar's house. And then we see Joseph him being tempted by a seductress in verses 6 through 12. And in this third section, verses 13 through 20, what do we see here? We see Joseph condemned for a crime that he did not commit. Joseph is condemned for a crime that he did not commit. Now, how did it happen? We just read it. How did it happen? We see Potiphar's wife slandered him. First, she slandered him to the fellow servants. Then Potiphar, his master, came home. She slandered Joseph to him. Potiphar, it says that he was raging or he was filled with anger and throws him into prison. And therefore, he's condemned for a crime he didn't commit because of this woman's slander. Brothers and sisters, beware of slander. It's a dangerous, and as we see here, a destructive thing, this sin called slander. Don't engage in it. Don't accept it. Don't receive it. I can't tell you how many times that, that, that myself and Dustin have prayed Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 140, verse 11 for this church, that the slander in the land would not be established. The slander would not cause problems and division in our midst. We play, prayed that many times. Beware of slander. And so Joseph is slandered and he's convicted and condemned for a crime he didn't commit. Now, one thing, one thing I think we can be reminded of here, reminded of in this, uh, this scenario is what are we supposed to expect from a, the dark world that we live in? As we decide, like Joseph, to stand on righteousness, to stand in holiness to walk with God in the midst of a sinful world, as we decide to do that, what can we expect from the world? Congratulations? Praise? Or that they would commend us? Is that what we can expect from the world? And the answer is absolutely not. We can expect, just like Joseph received, opposition. Opposition. Now here's the deal. I think oftentimes we tend to glamorize that opposition. As if as we stand in holiness... That the opposition towards Joseph would look something like this. His wife goes to Potiphar and says, Potiphar, that man is so holy and righteous and he won't sin against you. He won't sin against God. Throw him in jail. As if it's this glamorous thing that he's going to be persecuted for. But it's not that, is it? Rather, he's slandered. He's seen as one that's an adulterer, one that deceived everybody around him. And from that place, he's thrown into jail. Now, we've seen this some, uh, several of us that go out to the abortion facility and preach the gospel there. It's a hostile environment. It's a place where people hate you. And what did I expect? What kind of opposition do I, do I expect? Do I expect the opposition to be, we despise this man because he loves little children, loves babies, and wants to save them from being killed in the womb? Is that what they're going to say? No, absolutely not. They slander you. They say, this man hates women. This man wants to control women. That's what he wants to do. There's a verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, 
And I think we need, to, I need to remember, we need to remember this because this is what we can expect from the dark world that we live in when we stand in righteousness. It says this, they will speak against you as evildoers. They will not just say we hate you because you're so holy. They will slander you and speak against you as evildoers, it says. So what are you expecting, brothers and sisters, what are you expecting to receive from a dark world? Now, last section here, verse 21 through 23. Now we see Joseph as a prisoner in Potiphar's house. He was a slave in Potiphar's house. Now he's a prisoner in the prison that was in Potiphar's house. And as we read through that section, verse 21 through 23, we notice that the same thing that happened when he first became a slave happens when he first becomes a prisoner. What happens? We get this language about God being with him and everything he touches turns to gold. It seems to succeed. And he begins to move up in authority and influence even in the prison, even not just from Potiphar's master, but now from the keeper of the prison. Now, coming to that last section, I want us to do this. I want to mention some things to you about the structure of Genesis 39. I think... I think understanding some things about the structure of Genesis 39 uh, will be a help as you understand what's the point here. What's this chapter all about? And if you notice, the, the passage I just referred to, verse 21 through 23 at the very end, and verse 1 through 6 at the very beginning, those two sections, the very end, excuse me, the very beginning and the very end. If you look at those two sections, those two sections are very, very similar. Did you notice that? They're similar, they're similar just in a general sense. You've got Joseph's descent into slavery. You've got Joseph's descent into prison. Okay? You've got a focus in the first section, the first part, the first part of the book, first cover of the book. You've got a focus on God being with Joseph and helping Joseph. Same thing in the, at the very end. These bookends of God being with this man. Everything he does succeeds. You see in both sides that Joseph is put in charge Potiphar puts him in charge. Same thing on the other side. The keeper of the prison puts Joseph in charge. These are very, very similar. And I really want you to catch that, that I'm saying these are bookends that contain something really beautiful in the center. But I want you to, I want you to understand, these are bookends. I'm not making that up. I mean, there are exact phrases found on both sides, verse 1 through 6 and verse 21 through 23. We don't have time to linger here long, but let me just give you a few of those. The Lord was with Joseph. Found on the front cover, found on the back cover. That exact phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Both sides say that the master or the keeper of the prison saw that God was with Joseph. This phrase, the Lord caused all he did to succeed. On the front cover, on the back cover. Verse 1 through 6 and verse 21 through 23. Same phrase, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Both sides say that Joseph found favor. He found favor in these men's sight. This phrase, they put Joseph in charge. That exact phrase is found on both sides. It says also on both sides that the master or the keeper of the prison paid no attention to things anymore because Joseph could handle it. And so these are bookends, okay? Purposeful bookends. Now here's one thing. Before we move from that and look at what's beautiful in the middle, what do these bookends contain? I want you to notice something that's really interesting. 
The name of the Lord, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is found. If you, if you read through the Joseph, uh, the Joseph narrative in Genesis, okay? Starting in Genesis 37, and you're reading on through, and you look at the Joseph narrative. The, this, this name of God, Yahweh, as it's seen in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is found nine times in the Joseph narrative. Now, two of those times are found in the previous chapter, chapter 38. And in chapter 38, is God's judgment. It says, Yahweh was angry with them, their wickedness, and Yahweh killed them. Yahweh saw their wickedness and Yahweh killed them. That's two of them in 38. But listen, the, the, next, the, the, the rest of them, the seven occurrences of Yahweh's name, of Yahweh, is packed into these bookends. You wonder why? Why the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, 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 packed into these bookends? Why? Let's. I want you to catch the feeling of this. So, so read them with me. Look at verse. Look down at verse two. Verse two. It says, "The Lord was with Joseph." Verse three, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. And here it is again. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Look at verse 5. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Here it is again. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. That's the first part of the book. Go to the other side. Back cover of the book. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Maybe you could answer back. But God, I've been sold into slavery. But God, I've been unjustly framed and I'm thrown in prison. And the word here, God's with him. Yahweh's with him and shows him loving kindness and favor. Beautiful. Keep going down to verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so what are we to see from this? All these, this name of God, Yahweh, packed into these bookends that contain something beautiful in the middle. What are we supposed to see here? And at least one thing we're supposed to see is this. Yahweh is in control. That here's this one that has been promised that he would rule and reign on a massive scale, but he's been forsaken and betrayed by his brothers. He's been sold into slavery. He's been framed by a seductress and thrown into prison. And guess what? Yahweh's in control. He's in absolute control. Think about God like a painter. A painter or... or uh, an artist, right? And you're sitting there and you're watching the painter and he's about to put something on the canvas. Can you imagine how foolish it would be to watch the painter put the first stroke on the canvas and you say, that's a terrible painting. Wouldn't that be foolish? You see, God's painting a picture here. And our God is painting a picture not just with paint or on a canvas, but he's painting a picture with Joseph's life. Our God is a sovereign God that not only can say, tell you what the end is from the beginning 
And it knows all things, but he literally paints a picture with Joseph's life and other people in God's word. He paints a picture with their life to say something to us. And so we've got the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Why do we have this, this abundance of his name? He's in control. When Joseph is in the lowest place, God is in control. Now what's happening? We know that God, we know this from the last couple of weeks, that God is raising up Joseph. He's raising up Joseph to rule and reign in order to protect the seed of the woman, the Messiah that's promised to come, that's in Judah. The seed of the woman is coming through Judah. God raises up Joseph to protect that seed. But listen, God's in control of that. But, but why this route? God could have made him ruler and, and he could have made him reign over all of Egypt any way God wanted to do that. He could have just done it any way he wanted to. So why this route? Why sold into slavery? Why going through this humiliation of suffering? Why would we read in Genesis 39? Because God's painting a picture. He's in control even of that, even of the way Joseph gets to the place of ruling and reigning. And so what do we see here? And so what we see here is this. We know from the last couple of weeks that Joseph is a type of Christ, right? Promised to rule and reign over a massive scale. But first he must enter in to the humiliation of his suffering. And then he's going to be exalted to the right hand of the majesty. Why? So that he can save his brethren. If that's all you had, you know, man, he's a type of Jesus. Joseph is a type of Christ. But what do we see here? God's even in control of the way it gets there. What do we see here? What's contained in the middle of these bookends? And I want you to think about it. Number one, Joseph is tempted to sin. He enters into his temptation and he's victorious. Secondly, what do we see? He's condemned for a sin that he did not commit. He, did, do you hear that? Do I need to explain the type of Christ here? The pictures of Jesus here? That here's this one that's going to rule and reign. First, he must enter into his humiliation. But in the midst of his humiliation, like Christ... He enters into a temptation of sin. And yet he's absolutely victorious. No sin. And then he's punished for crime that he didn't commit. Who's this sound like? I hope that's beautiful to you. Now I want, to make, I want us to make a few more connections in that that are a little bit deeper. A little bit deeper. I want you to think about Judah versus Joseph. Genesis 38 told us about Judah. And Genesis 39 told us about Joseph. Now, there's a very clear contrast here and a, and a purposeful contrast. I'm not making this up. This is the Holy Spirit writes his word and orders his word the way he sees fit. And there's a very clear and purposeful contrast between Genesis 38 and Genesis 39. Judah and Joseph. So here's the similarities between these two chapters and these two men. And I'll give you three similarities between Genesis 38 and Genesis 39. One, they're both separated from their family to dwell among pagans. Go read that in Genesis 38. You see that Judah separates himself from his family. He's dwelling among 
pagans, even Mary's pagans. And you see the same thing in Joseph's life as well. Number two, very clearly, both of them are tempted by a seductress. We see that with Judah, tempted by a seductress in Tamar. And we see the same thing in Genesis 39, uh, as Joseph is tempted by a seductress in Potiphar's wife. And then the third similarity is this, is both of these chapters give language that compare both of these men to Adam. They have language, they have Garden of Eden type language in chapter 38 and chapter 39 that points them back to Adam, compares them to Adam. Now let me try to mention that quickly. The one in chapter 38, if you remember in verse 2, it says that, that Judah saw, if you remember this from last week, Judah saw and he took. He saw and he took. And that's the language of the Garden of Eden, that they saw that, what was on that tree and they took it. And then as you keep reading down, you see in verse 6, we have Judah's descendants. God saw their wickedness and killed them. And that's the language of Adam's descendants with Noah. God saw their wickedness and brought down judgment and killed them. So here's this comparison that Judah is like Adam. Adam was tempted in sin and he fell. He's a failure. He sinned against God. So did Judah. Okay, we have similar things in chapter 39. You remember what Joseph said in chapter 39, verse 9. He said, He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me, and this ought to remind you of the Garden of Eden, except you. The Master has given me everything except one thing, you. You could freely eat of all the trees of the garden, but not this tree that's in the midst of the garden, except this one thing. And so now we have a comparison of not only Judah to Adam, but now Joseph to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so here's these similarities. Both of them tempted by a seductress. Both of them tempted like Adam was tempted. Now the differences. That's the similarities. Here's this contrast. But the differences ought to be really, really obvious, right? Judah is tempted and what happens? He fails. Jesus is tempted, victorious. Judas sins against God. He falls to the temptation and sins against God. Joseph is like the sinless one, victorious over sin. Can't turn him away from his God. So I hope you see this contrast. Whenever you read, whenever you read through the Joseph narrative as a whole, Judah is presented to us as a scoundrel of a man, a wicked, evil scoundrel of a man that later is converted. But Joseph is presented to us in the Joseph narrative as a sinless savior. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not Jesus. He's not sinless. But written by the Holy Spirit, he's presented to us as a spotless one that will save his people. He's presented to us as a, as a faultless one that will deliver His people. That's the way He's presented, the sinless Savior. And so what do we take away from this? What do we take away from this? Do we take away, be a Joseph, brothers and sisters. Don't be a Judah. And obviously, there's some ways that you should be a Joseph we're talking about temptation of sin earlier and the way he responded. Sure, be a Joseph. But is that the main point here? 
Brothers and sisters, be like Joseph, don't be like Judah. Is that the main point? Or is it, you are a Judah. You most certainly are. And you need a Joseph, a sinless Savior, to be raised up to save you. You're a Judah that needs a Joseph. We need a spotless, righteous, sinless Savior to save us from our likeness to Judah and our likeness to Adam. You thought Genesis 39 was just about fleeing sexual morality. Go to Luke 3. I want to I close in Luke 3. In Luke chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's a similar contrast. So just like Genesis 38 and 39 shows us one who failed in temptation and one who is victorious over all temptation, just like Genesis 38 and 39 does that, so Luke 3 and 4 does the same. So look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens, try to picture it, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. This is a massive moment. The father puts the finger on the son and says, that's my beloved son. That's the beloved son. That's the son of God in whom I'm well pleased. It's a massive moment. Massive. Think of the build-up. Think of the introduction. You know, these massive introductions mean something, right? Like, I heard that this weekend. We went to hear, you know, John Piper preach, and it's, they got to introduce him, and he you knows president of Bethlehem Seminary, pastor of this church for 40 years, and, you know, author of a gajillion books, and it's like, and they're going through his introduction, you know, because he's done a lot of things. Now, compare that. If they introduce me, what do they say? Ron's up. That's it. Think about this introduction. This isn't the introduction of a famous preacher. This is the introduction of Christ. That it begins in Genesis 3.15. Way back there that there's one coming that's going to crush Satan's head. There's one coming that's going to bless all nations. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And there's promises are given. You're talking about thousands of years of introduction. And then he rips the heavens open and says, that's him. The Son of God, He's right there. I've given you symbols of lambs being slaughtered and symbols of high priests that show you how to enter into my presence. I've even controlled the lives of people like Joseph. I control their very life so that even their life shows something about my Son. And now He's arrived. And He's baptized and the heavens are split open. That's Him. That's the Son of God. Huge moment. What's next? Look at Luke 3. What's next? Verse 23. Just, just glance at it. What's next? A genealogy? What's this massive moment, man? It's a huge moment where that's the Son of God. And then next 
Next passage to the end of the chapter, you give me a genealogy. And it traces out Jesus' lineage all the way to who? Very last one. It says, Adam. And what does it call him? The Son of God. Interesting. You got two sons of gods here. Two sons of God. You got the Son of God, Jesus. It's my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. You got Adam, the Son of God. Two sons of God being presented. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, you've got the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam and the last Adam. Now here they are. They're being compared, they're being contrasted. And then what comes next in the story? Luke chapter 4. You, you know, just glance at it. You know this section, right? What do we have here? The temptation of Jesus. Let's put them side by side. You got Adam, the first Adam, the last Adam, Christ. Next step, Jesus by, led by the Holy Spirit. This is his own purpose. He's led into temptation. And he's tempted three times. And look. Just like the other passage, maybe you thought it was about fleeing sexual morality, and sure you should, no doubt. Take that lesson. But it's more than that. Do you read this passage and you think this passage is about memorizing Bible verses? Now you should. You should memorize Bible verses to fight sin, but is that what this temptation is about? No, this is Jesus tempted three times, and yet he's victorious. Tempted like none of us have ever been tempted. You've been tempted to sin, no doubt. You've never been put up on a mountain and shown all the nations in a moment of time. You've never been put on the pinnacle of a temple. He hasn't gone after you like that. All of hell, all of the demonic forces waging war against Christ to tempt Him to sin, and He's faultless. That's what Luke 4 is about. That's what this temptation is about. He's tempted to sin, but He's faultless. He's faultless. Now I want you to think about something with this comparison. 1 John 2.16 describes the temptation of the world. It says this. It says that the world is this. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. 1 John 2.16. Adam fell to that. You know that? Genesis 3.6. It said he saw, they saw that the tree was good for food. Lust of the flesh, he's fallen. Saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the the eyes, he's fallen. And it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life, and he's sinning against God. Jesus, here in the temptation in Luke 4, is presented with the same thing. If you're the son of God, take this stone and make it bread. Lust of the flesh, and he prevails. Takes him up on a mountain. Look at all these nations. It'll all be yours. The lust of the eyes. And he prevails. Takes him on the pinnacle of the temple. Says just drop yourself down. The pride of life. And he stands victorious over all sin. He's the sinless, spotless, victorious, righteous Savior. Jesus Christ. And yet was condemned for sin that he did not commit. Now, what's the lesson here? So we see this comparison with Jesus and Adam. What's the lesson? Is it be a Jesus, not an Adam? Is that the lesson? Or is the lesson 
You are Adam. You are in, you're born in Adam. You're like Adam. You take on his sinful nature. You need a greater than Joseph to save you. You need Christ to save you from your sins. You need a Hebrews 4.15 Savior. It says that Jesus was tempted in every single way as we are, yet without sin. Can you imagine that? Not one selfish thought. Not one moment of pride. Not one iota of lust. Perfect obedience to the Father. Can you imagine it? Every single moment, every second of your life is tainted by sin. Not one moment of His his life is tainted by sin. He's the perfect, sinless Savior. Listen to me. If He would not be the perfect one, the sinless one, the spotless one, the one that Joseph's life points us to. If he wasn't like that, he could not be the atonement for your sin. He'd have to pay for his own sin. That's the way it says in Hebrews 7, verse 26 to 27, that we've got this great high priest that's holy. He's spotless. He's separate from sinners. He's higher than the heavens. He does not need, as those other priests... To offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the others. But this he did once for all. And only he could do that. If he was not the sinless one, he could not pay for your sin. And last thing I'll mention is this. You need, when you stand before God one day, you'll stand before God one day. Fact. And when you do, the only way you can do that safely, the only way you can do that safely is if you stand before God one day in perfect, spotless, sinless robes of righteousness. Where are you going to get them? Where will you get them? Is it your own? Will you just earn it? Will you, will you work your way into it and earn this robe of righteousness so you can stand before God one day? It's a foolish pursuit. Isaiah 64, 6 says that even your best righteousness is puny, filthy rags. It's sick, gross rags. That's your best day. So how are you going to stand safely before God? With perfect, sinless robes of righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. God made him who knew no sin. Like this little picture of Joseph. He's tempted and he's victorious. The one that, that his life points to is the one who actually knew no sin. He's the sinless one. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He goes to the cross. He's punished under the wrath of God. He's punished for a crime he did not commit. And then it says, so that we might become, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He swaps with us. That He takes our filthy rags onto Himself and He dies for them. And He takes His robe of righteousness and He puts it on those who repent and put their faith in Christ. And so if he's not the sinless one, if he's not the greater than Joseph, then you can't stand safely before God. But he is, and if you trust him, you can. Let's pray.
God, thank you so much for your word. And um, Lord, I think about these moments. Lord Jesus, where you're facing temptation. And none of us can stand, Lord. None of us could stand against the tempter. But you crushed his head. By your death, you destroyed the one that had the power of death and all his temptations. You're mighty to save, Lord. We lift you up as mighty to save. You have all power and all wisdom, Lord, and you're perfect in every way. Lord, we lift you up. You're you're a glorious Savior. And we praise you, God, that you were punished for our crimes. And you chose to do that, Lord. They couldn't find they couldn't bring any charge against you, Lord. They had to lie. (laughs) They had to lie, Lord. They couldn't find any charge to bring against you, Lord. You're the spotless one. And you just sat there silent. Like a lamb to the slaughter. And you took our place under God's wrath. Thank you so much, Lord. We worship you, Lord. Help us to worship you more. Help us to worship you in this song. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.